<clears throat> we always have a lot of visitors, and especially when we do baptisms, we're glad that the families are here. Uh, we've been studying the book of Mark uh, for the past almost year now. And uh, the reason that we're studying the book of Mark is it teaches us who the person of Christ is and his work. Uh, now we come uh, to a very important point in the book of Mark because we come to the very last week of his life. And it's in this last week we see these two things coming together, his person and his work. Who is he and what has he done? What's interesting, if you look at, at Mark, you, you'll notice that the, a, a great deal of Mark, almost half of Mark, deals with the last week of Christ's life. In fact, if you're a student of the Scripture and you go to the book of John, you'll notice that half of John deals with the last week of Christ's life. In fact, uh, John 13 and following is the last hours before he is, is crucified. Now today we come to the beginning of that last week that we're going to be looking at intently for the next uh, month or so. And um, it's known as Palm Sunday, right? The little children come in with a little palm. Well, we don't do that here, but I'm sure you've been to church. Uh, well, they don't know if they were palm branches, but they were branches and there were cloaks that were laid before, before Jesus Christ and it's called his triumphal entry because uh, he is coming in as the promised one of the scriptures and he's acknowledging himself at this point, finally, as your king, as your God. Now, why is this text important to you this morning? Because either you have and are presently responding to that cosmic week, or you're not. We are either, as believers in Christ, are submitting to him and not only laying down uh, branches and cloaks, but we're laying down our lives for King Jesus, who's redeemed us by his blood. Or, or we might be like the crowd that is excited for a while, but because things don't quite pan out, you're sliding out the door. Now, you, you're not den denying the faith, but you're moving to the fringes. Mark's gospel tells us that we're to respond to this person and to his work. You're to respond. Everyone is, you're going to respond one way or the other, better now than later. But why should we respond? What is it that's really going to make us re respond that he rules by the iron hand? No. Uh, you, you know what? Uh, the, the judgments of God will never convert any, anybody. It is ultimately the goodness of God. And we see the goodness of God in this text as we see the meekness of God in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus will say to you today that, that my life is so messed up, I can't surrender my life. There's nothing there to give. He promises in Matthew 11, all you who are weak and weary and, and heavy laden, you sinned and you screwed your life up to the point of it's impossible to get it back. He would say to you especially, come in your weakness because I'm meek, and I'll give you rest. Is that a promise of God? Sure it is. He doesn't come to the proud, the religious, the self-righteous. He comes to those who say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So that's what we're going to look at today. And I have a few moments here before communion, as I noticed on that clock back there. But I only have two points, so that's a good thing. So if you would, I want you to turn with me to the Bible that we believe is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. This is God's Word. So give careful attention to God's Word. 
And now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied, in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then Luke 19, I wanted to put this in here. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept, saying, Would that you, even you, had known of this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, I know as we come to your word this morning, there are those who are here today who desperately need to hear from you. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And Father, there are those who know, and, and they do know. They know deep in their hearts, and, and um, Lord, they have responded to you, and, and yet there's fears and doubts. Maybe questions as to whether it is worth it to submit their lives to you. Things are hard. And so, Father, I pray for them that you would encourage them. And then, Father, I pray also for those who struggle with skepticism and maybe those who are moving away from the gospel altogether. Or maybe those who have come here today and do not believe. Lord, I pray that they might understand Jesus weeping is over those who missed the day of visitation. And Lord, you would have mercy upon them and turn them to yourself. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, during my years with RUF, and for you that don't know R, what the lingo, the RUF, it's the, the PCA's college denomination, denominational ministry, uh, I shared an office with a lot of other chaplains from their respective denominations. And, and it always made for interesting conversation, interaction, because we're all in this office together, maybe seven or eight offices. And I am your one lone token evangelical guy. 
And uh, they were not of the evangelical persuasion. And, and if you don't know what evangelical means, it kind of means you really believe the Bible, okay? <laughs> you believe that Jesus Christ really is God raised from the dead, and the Bible is the Word of God. And because I'm Reformed and evangelical, uh, I believe the inerrancy of Scripture. And, of course, there was this kind of attitude that, well, you know, you know you're naive about this. Well, it was important to me when I first became a Christian, and I know I've said this before, that I wanted to know, uh, is, is what I have existentially experienced and the little bit I knew about the Word of God, if I'm going to give my life to this, it, I, I need to know if it's true, right? I mean, have you ever even gotten that far? To, to question, okay, if I'm going to give my life to this, is there, are the scriptures true? And so, so um, you know, I'm not the flaming intellectual, but I was willing to read people that didn't believe the Bible. And uh, so when I was in college, I took a lot of courses uh, by professors who didn't believe the Bible. They thought it was uh, silly to believe the Bible. They thought it was not, uh, you know, Hicks believed that. And so I spent a great deal of time preparing myself so that when God in his providence brought me to this school that I, ha- I understood the mindset. Uh, one afternoon early in the ministry, I had one of the chaplains who uh, knocked on my door. And uh, she wanted to ask me a question. That's the interaction part, right? And I said, sure, shoot. And uh, she said, uh, it would probably really, really bother you if you discovered that the Bible not only had some error, but indeed had a great number of errors. And of course, my response was, most definitely. <laughs> uh, it would bother me a great deal. Uh, I, would, I would not be sure what I should believe, right? Should I believe this or should I not believe this? Maybe some of you deal with that. What part am I supposed to submit to? What part are you supposed to submit to? What part of it you do like? Romans chapter 8? Nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ. Neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers. And then you go to Romans 9 and it says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated yet before they're born. And you go, oh, not that part. How do we put all these things together? And so I said, I told her, I said, sure, I'd be, I would probably be doing another job. And I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And she said, uh, of course not. So I said, well, have you ever read a gentleman named Walter Eichrode? And she said, yes. I said, have you ever read Julius Wellhausen or Johann Eichhorn? And she, of course she had. And so I told her, well, I've read those guys. And, uh, but let me ask you, so have you ever read uh, any scholarship from a man named Benjamin Warfield, actually a uh, she was from Princeton. He's a Princeton professor. No. Well, have you ever read any uh, J. Gresham Machen, Professor Machen? He was also a Princeton uh, professor. No. And I said, well, have you ever read any Richard Pratt or J.I. Packer or John Stott? Those who are scholars who believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And she said, No. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Would it bother you, would it upset you, if you were to read them and discover that the Bible is actually the inerrant word of God? And, of course, uh, she smiled, and I smiled, and she went back to her ministry, and I went back to mine. (laughs) 
Now, let, let me tell you why I want to tell you this. And y'all notice that lately I've been really hammering on this importance of knowing the Bible. Because you're basing your life on something, friends. And if you have a casual reading of the Bible, it will never grip you. It will never have the impact upon you so that when you read what's going on here, you go beyond the fact that it's a story about Jesus on a donkey. That there's something significant that's going on here because not only it is, is in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but now we have the fourth gospel testifying to the significance of this event that's significant for you this morning. I recently spoke with a gentleman who had a lot of objections, objections I've heard about the historical and cradle Christianity. But then I began to press this person uh, as to whether they read the Bible. They said, not really. And I said, but don't you think it's important that before we begin to talk about these things philosophically that are out there, that at least you understand the book you come to critique? And so as we come to our text, what we have in our text is this beautiful story of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Now, I only have two points I want to make about this this record of this, of this event in all four of the Gospels. And for sake of time, I want to come straight to these points. The first point is this. We see Jesus coming in our passage in meekness. He's meek and lowly. And then I want us to see the necessity that you can only come to Jesus Christ in your weakness. Meekness and weakness. So the first thing to see in our text is this. We see Jesus Christ coming to us in meekness. That's what our text uh, says. That's what the, the, the Old Testament lesson was a quote from Zechariah about the Messiah coming into Jerusalem meek and lowly upon a horse. Now what's very clear is throughout the book of Mark that Jesus has been trying to hide his identity, right? You notice that? So if you come to the very first chapter in the, in the first real miracle, it's when he comes, he's baptized, he's out in the wilderness, and he comes to a synagogue, and he's preaching the kingdom of God, and it blows everybody away because he was better than Billy Graham. He was better than Charles Spurgeon. He is one who spoke with authority. He mesmerized them because it wasn't the teachings of keeping the law and the traditions of men. And every sermon, I'm sure that Jesus Christ taught pointed to him because he is the point of the Bible, you understand. He is the second Adam. He is the one who has come to be your substitute. And what the text tells us is that there was a man who was there, just like maybe you as a church member, uh, and the law never brought it out of him, but he was a man who was demon-possessed. He might have been a self-righteous man, for all we know. And so when Jesus begins to speak and point to himself, the demon, uh, the, the, the man, the demons begin to cry out. And of course, Jesus rebukes them, and he tells them to be silent. 
Because it was to be the profession of Peter later. He did not want that profession yet. And yet it says that the fame went throughout Capernaum. Now throughout the, the book of Matthew, notice how every time that Jesus healed someone, he would tell them, don't tell anybody. Right? And what would they do? They'd go tell everybody. Oh yeah, you don't want me to tell them I was, <laughs> couldn't see, but now I see. Uh, maybe it's kind of like when I first became a Christian and I went and started telling everybody about Jesus and it took about 25 years for some of them to listen to me again. I was so obnoxious about it. And of course, the reason that Jesus asked them not to do that is because when they did, it moved him out to the wilderness. He, he, he couldn't, uh, they, they were wanting to crown him as a king before it was time. And so now we, we come to our text and our text uh, tells us that he's acknowledging it now. One week before he is to be crucified, he is coming into Jerusalem and he is acknowledging that he is the king of the universe. That he is the true and living God, the creator and the redeemer. And so, of course, the disciples are excited. But how does he come in? He comes in on a donkey. Yeah, one of these little donkeys about like this. He doesn't come in as the kings of the world come in. Come, comes in. He's, he's like, if you've seen the movie the, uh, with the hobbit, you know, and here's the hobbit on the little horse, and here are all the other guys on the great big horses. And, he, and he's riding on the little horse. Well, that's not the way the kings of the world enter in when they conquer. They ride in victory on stallions, horses of war. You know, in my studies uh, this week, I discovered that a Roman uh, soldier, general, he could not have a procession with everybody with their, you know, chains around their necks unless he had killed at least 8,000 men. A sign of his being a conqueror. And the way the world operates in power. But this king did not come to kill thousands, but to only have one. And it's the king himself who would lay his life down so that millions, and maybe you today, might enter into his presence and might have life. So he comes in meekness. But then the question ends up being, what, is, what does that mean? What is weak, meekness and what is weakness? And, and what does it mean that he comes in meekness and we're to come to him in weakness? Are they not the same thing as meekness, not weakness? Because that's the way we end. I guess because it rhymes, maybe. And when we think about meek people, we don't think of meek people inheriting the earth. We don't think about them reigning. And we're going to see this in a minute. It has everything to do with it. But what is meekness? Well, it's how Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11. For you today who have not hardened your hearts and you're going, I have so messed my life up. I need external help. I need someone to come and save me. He says, come today. Because I am meek and I am lowly. So he describes himself as meek. 
Meekness is often defined as weakness. But if that were weakness, no one would have the strength to do what he did in this life. To discipline himself to continue to love his disciples, to continue to work in their lives and and to minister to them. They are constantly looking after themselves. That's not weakness. That's meekness. Meekness defined, and here it is, and before I move to kind of the next point here. Meekness is strength in submission. It is strength in submission. Let me tell you how the world thinks. The world thinks in terms of strength and power and self-will and self-might. To be aggressive, right? That's what we're taught. That's why you go to college, to be assertive. To, to put yourself forward, to build confidence. To, as they say, I think in that little uh, class you take your first year of college, Abraham Maslow, what do they call that? The, the self-actualized. And so what we have is self-help books, but not other help books. And, and, and so we organize our entire lives, you see, and maybe you're doing this, you organize your whole life around not being meek, but being strong. To be, be, be successful professionally. Uh, to, 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 uh, to fulfill your own happiness. But of course that really kind of comes into be a problem when you're kind of married to somebody, right? Or you're in a relationship with others. Or you're a single person, you have roommates. Because you see, in our effort to build ourselves up, we begin to look behind us and guess what we see? A great wake of people destroyed by our own desire to be in control of our lives. You understand that? The reign and rule of our own life, that I'm not submitting my life to Christ, I'm submitting my life to my will. Now again, I, I just have to ask you this at this point, for some of you, and I'm, I'm asking you whether you've been a leader at Redeemer, maybe you're an elder, you're a deacon, or maybe you've been at church for a while, you've been coming for 15 years, and slowly but surely you're beginning to see yourself moving away from the power of the gospel because you've lost sight of the meekness of Christ. Somebody has defined meekness this way, and I think this is one of the, the, the well, let me just say this. When you're, when you're in that process of kind of conquering your own world, uh, the guy that did it was Alexander the Great. Remember him? He had a lot of processions until he ran out of cities to conquer. And, and there, was, there was nobody else to, to lift him up because he had conquered it all. Only to say that I have conquered the world, only to discover that the world has conquered me. I mean, seriously, how many of y'all want to be successful? I mean, I, I guess at some level, I, want to be, I don't want to be a failure. No, who wants to be a failure? But right, but when you start def- defining success, how do you find, define success? A nice house here in Athens? A nice job? Being a professor? Having lots of children? Being recognized as a great preacher? Or recognized as, as somebody that's respectable? Only to discover that when you attain those things and the, whatever the success is, it, you know, the joke's on us, isn't it? But here we see Jesus being meek, and somebody has, has defined meek as gentleness, is the word we get gentleman from, right? The person who's the gentleman, the person who could snap you apart intellectually or any other way, but they serve, right? Gentleman. 
In fact, actually, the little translation of the word meekness is this idea of a horse. The horse is meek. It has the rider upon its back. And it lets the rider take it wherever it will, but it could crush the rider. The strength to crush, but strength subdued to the will of the rider. Jesus Christ could have called down his angels because he wasn't weak. But because he was meek, he was power under control, doing the will of the Father for who? For proud, arrogant sinners like us. And he submits to death on a cross so that we might have life. That's why some of you are moving away from Christ. Because you see, you're, you're not chewing upon the fact that he has substituted. He has gained the inheritance for us. Well, there's lots of ways that we can see the meekness of Christ in our text. One is that he, he's obedient to the Scripture. You know what a meek person is? You know what a real meek person is? Somebody who obeys God. Like if you always have these reasons that you can't really serve God or this is because of this and God, you did this to me and that to me. You know what? That's besides the point. What do you think happened to Jesus Christ? Do you think he was treated fairly? But because he loved the Father and because he loved us, he submits to the Word of God. Show me a man or woman who knows the Word of God and submits to the Word of God, and I'll show you a man or woman who's easy to live with. Somebody that does not knowledge that puffeth up, but is submitting to the Word of God like Jesus Christ, and you let, as it were, God ride you for the sake of others. But we see him riding on the donkey, and I, you know, I, I would have been embarrassed. His disciples were embarrassed, actually, because if you go to John chapter 12 and look at that other gospel that kind of reflects it, it says they didn't understand any of this until after he was glorified. Oh, okay, so here's our king. Remember my daddy bought an Eldorado Cadillac when I was in uh, 10th grade. Now look back at that car now, it's the ugliest car I've ever seen. But I always wanted to borrow my daddy's Eldorado when I went out on a date. You know why? Because it says that you're not like everybody else driving Chevrolets. If you have a Chevrolet, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't have an Eldorado, I can tell you that. And, and here he is, he's riding on the donkey, the king. We see his meekness, and I wanted to put this passage in Luke here because it's not in Mark, but what does he do? He comes in, and the very people that he is going, who are going to turn on him and say, crucify him, it didn't work. He weeps for them. Can, can you, I, can't get, I cannot get, it's too good to be true, isn't it? That our Lord Jesus Christ, he looks at all the wickedness and the people who'd rebelled against him for thousands of years. And you know what he does? He weeps over them. Have you seen Jesus weeping over your estate? 
You see, it's always the goodness of God that leads to repentance, that will soften your heart. Always. How many rebellious children have been changed because they accidentally heard their father crying and praying over their soul? Weeping. And it's that love, that parental authority that can absolutely do, uh, you know, at least till they're a certain age, um, could punish them. But rather than punishment, they say weeping. Well, how do you know if that's happened in your life? Because, you see, Jesus comes meek, and if you don't understand that, You'll never admit your own weakness. But if you see your own weakness, and you say, where do you see that in the text? Well, let me tell you where I see it. Um, because it's a fair question. Uh, we see it in the crowd that, that they were throwing their cloaks, and they say, hey, he's here, the king is here. And, and of course, you've got to understand that they, they have the same understanding like when you first become a Christian. Oh, now that... I'm a Christian, my parents won't get divorced. And I'll get in school I want to get into. And I'll be as pretty as I want. I'll be able to lose all that weight. Whatever. And your parents get a divorce. And you don't get the scholarship you wanted. You wanted to be, you wanted to be a doctor, but you know what? God did not make you smart enough to be a doctor. And, and then, of course, all the doctors wish they weren't smart enough to be doctors because they'd probably rather be doing something else sometimes. And, 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 then, and then people begin to go, wait a minute. This is not what I planned. I will not submit to you. How many of you are like that today? I mean, why do you come to church? Because, you see, if God in his mercy and his grace is not softening your heart... And making you respond to the gospel. To where it's like, Lord Jesus, if you die for me, I will do whatever you want me to do. Do you want me to suffer? I will suffer because you suffered. But you see, you can't do that until you come in all your brokenness and say, God Almighty, would you have mercy upon me? And Jesus picks you up and he says, of course I will. Now take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Is the yoke of God easy for you? Is the burden light? Well, if it is, now you're beginning to move from weakness to meekness. Well, let me tell you what a meek person is. Uh, y'all see it on my bulletin. Do y'all, know, do y'all ever read those bulletin quotes? Please read them. I look for them. Uh, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, uh, you know, a meek person is somebody who's always angry at the right, right time and never angry at the wrong time. Right? It's never against you. You know, a meek person is when somebody says something bad about you and rather than getting offended, you, you and Jesus know. And you go, is that all? You don't know the half of it. Now, if, you, if, I, if what I'm saying doesn't make sense to you, it might very well be because you have never, ever repented of your sin and come to King Jesus who could wipe you out in a moment, but he has wiped out on your behalf. What has somebody done against you? You know, a meek person forgives people. Don't worry about it. You say, but you have no idea. Yes, I do. I have an idea what's happened to you. 
But you have no idea what real injustice is until you make Jesus Christ for you. And, and, and so, so, so a meek person is never easily offended. If somebody says, like, sure, hey, you want that? Have it. And let me tell you why meek people inherit the earth. Is that right? You say, how do meek people inherit the earth? Well, because, you see, we spend our whole life getting college degrees and master's degrees and PhDs and, and getting all these uh, annuities and all this stuff so that one day, uh, one day we can be somebody. And, uh, and, but you never get there, right? If you're, have y'all any of y'all noticed yet that you're not happy where you are? You got this, you got that. We have a baptism of a child. That's great. But there's still these bills I got to pay. So how do meek people inherit the earth? I'll tell you how you inherit the earth. When it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about you anymore and you don't need college degrees or a house here in that neighborhood or this and that and the other, do you understand you own everything? You have it all because you have Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Do you see him as meek? He's able to crush you. But rather than being crushed... I mean, you being crushed, he's crushed on your behalf. As we come to the table, I do have to say this. When he comes back, he's not coming back on a mule. He's coming back on a stallion. And if you have all these arguments as to why you're not a Christian, you're not submitting your life to God, or you're not submitting your life to God, then let me tell you, he's not coming back humbly. He's coming back righteously. And if he has not substituted for you and been crushed on your behalf, then the horse of judgment will crush you. Because it has to. Sin must be dealt with. But friends, Jesus has paid the price. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because it was too late. They did not know the day of visitation. He came to his own and his own received him not. Jesus Christ is here this morning. He's always everywhere in the fullness of his glory, but every now and then he peels it back. If he's peeled back his glory to you this morning, respond. Repent, lest your heart become so hard it is given over. Come to Jesus, because he loves you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we all deserve to be left alone. And the worst thing that could happen to any of us in this room is for you to say, okay, I'll leave you alone. But Lord, if your Holy Spirit is working in the lives of people this morning, would you have mercy upon them? I don't care what their sin is. I do not care what their sin is. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That's your promise. So Lord, would you bring them to yourself? Father, I want to pray for my dear friends, my dear brothers and sisters, who slowly but surely been moving to the fringes because they begin to question your goodness. Lord, would you cause them to know that their affliction, whether it's not having enough money or their marriage is struggling, that, Lord, all these things are to point us to a world to come. And you're the door. And so, Lord, teach us to come now and to know joy and peace by coming to Christ today. And we ask it in your name. Amen.